Hello, Brooke family. Uh, I, my name is Brian. I am a pastor here. Um, this is um, a great joy and privilege to bring uh, God's Word today. Um, we're continuing our series called Dreaming in Color, which uh, in simple terms is just um, an invitation for each of us to um, step into what God may be doing in us and through us, what He desires from us. Um, Lord, if we would just be bold enough, if we would be just set free enough just to think beyond just this moment, just beyond today, but into the future and what God may have in store for each of us individually and collectively as a church, um, which is both a, a great joy, um, but also sometimes can bring sadness as um, the reality is this is also uh, going to be my last time preaching uh, for for you as one of your pastors. Um, in four weeks, uh, Ashley and, and I and the family will be moving to New Orleans um, to the Lord willing you planning a church. Um, it is both a time of great uh, excitement, um, anticipation of what God wants to do, as He has really been even freeing us over the last year to begin and ask the question, how can we dream differently? How can we dream of a future that is not yet? And so um, it is my joy this morning, it is my privilege this morning to bring God's word to you uh, for the very last time as, as your pastor. Um, but this relationship does not end. Um, this relationship is not over. This relationship just changes. And so um, this morning, I thought it would be fitting to, to bring the word that God's really been using for the last three or four years um, to shape who I am, to shape what he is calling me to do, um, and ultimately what we pray that will shape the, the life of our church in New Orleans, but also here uh, locally here in Miami. And that is um, going to be uh, from Matthew 5, um, starting in verse 3. This is the famous Sermon on the Mount. Um, and so let me read real quick, um, and then we'll get started. And so... Jesus says, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and, give it and it gives light to all in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Lord God, I just pray for um, our time today. Lord God, that you would um, use what you've been doing uh, in my heart, in my life, in the life of my family. Lord, over the last few uh, years, especially this last 12 months, Lord, as you've been, um, in one sense, setting us free, setting us free from um, thoughts and, and ideas that we had that were not aligned with where you were calling us to be. 
Lord, where you were setting us free to dream of a future that was not on our radar um, not too long ago. Lord, a, a dream and a vision of what you've had in store from the very beginning. Lord, what you've been using the last few years, Lord, the ups and the downs, the ins and the outs, to orchestrate for your good, for your glory, for your praise. And it is my prayer and it is, it is my desire that this morning that you would do that in each of those that are hearing um, your word preached, Lord, that you would convict us where we have um, held on to things that you've asked us to let go of. Lord God, that you would call us to, to look at our lives and look at um, the opportunities that you've opened up for us a little bit different than maybe we have in the past. Lord God, that you would call us to be your people, not just on Sunday mornings, not just when we go on mission trips or when we engage in certain issues, but Lord, that you would shape in us and you would form in us a people that is on mission every day, every moment, because of what you have done in us, because of what you're doing through us. Lord God, I pray to that end this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Oftentimes when we begin to think about a future, when we think about a business that we want to start, whether or a ministry that we want to begin or some new endeavor, inevitably we were put forward with the question, what is your vision? What is this thing that is not that you want to see come to be? What is this future that you hope for? And then tied to that is the mission, right? How are you going to go and achieve it? What is going to be the work that you do? The vision is something in the future. The mission is what we're going to do today. But there's something unique about our Christian's perspective because those two things are good. But what God gives us is actually a third element that if we do not take hold of, if we do not acknowledge, then we can do a lot of work, we can do a lot of striving, yet miss the mark of where God wants us to be and who he wants us to be. And this most important piece, this, this third element that we really have to take hold of this morning is that God not just doesn't just give us a vision, he doesn't just give us a mission, which is go make disciples, but he gives us an identity. And our vision and our mission must flow out of our identity. We must first acknowledge and recognize who we are in Christ Jesus. And then from that identity, from that position, then we can go and seek the future that we desire. This future that God himself is calling us to. And so when we look at this particular passage, it's the very beginning of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of the most well-known, most widely understood um, or recognized sections of Scripture. Because it's the way that it's written, the way that it's organized, it's memorable. There's, there's bumper sticker type quotes, there's t-shirt type quotes, there's things that we write on the wall because they're that memorable. But unfortunately, sometimes we can, because it's so memorable, we can miss the things that God wants to show us in it. And one of the first things that I believe God wants to show us, and the thing that God's been showing me really over the last few years is that I must first understand who I am in Christ Jesus. I must first understand who I am in light of what Christ has done for me before I can get to work, before I can get my hands dirty, before I can put in a lot of time and energy and effort, before I can uproot myself and move somewhere else. I must first understand who I am. 
And this shouldn't be new to us. This is actually something uh, Pastor Mucci talks about often. When we look at Jesus himself, what was the first thing he did before he went into ministry? He was baptized, and then the Lord said, this is my son and who I'm well pleased. It's this identification of his sonship, this identification of pleasure before he did anything ministry-related, before he did anything to serve his father, his father said, you are my son, and in you I am well pleased. And it was only then that immediately the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness, and his ministry, as we understand it, began. And so the same is with us. Jesus shows us right here in the Beatitudes that a picture of who we are called to be as the people of God, as the family of God, But it's a picture that we probably wouldn't expect. And before we even look at the details of that, I want to actually kind of give a, a preface in that if we're really going to understand the picture that, God, that Jesus is painting for us, this uh, picture of this people of God, this disciple of Christ, this new family, we need to understand two things. Number one, this is not a checklist. Oftentimes in the Beatitudes or even... Um, in the fruit of the Spirit, we look at these things and we see it as a checklist. We see it as a thing that we must do. Okay, if we are, if we are believers, if we're followers of Christ, we're disciples of Christ, then all of a sudden, okay, we got to be poor in spirit, we got to be those that mourn, we got to be those that meek, and so on and so forth. It's this checklist that we seek to try and fulfill. But that's not what this is. And on the other side, there's also a, a a large part of the history of the church that has looked at this and said, this is an unattainable list of, of attributes. And so I'm going to kind of stay at arm's length away from it because there's no way I can accomplish this. So thanks God, he's, he's been merciful, he's been gracious, and we're going to move on. But I think both of these are, are wrong moves because there's actually something beautiful that's being offered to us, and if we take either one of those approaches, we're totally missing the beauty, and we're getting caught up in the details. And the other thing um, that we have to recognize is that some of your uh, Bibles oftentimes will say blessed, others will say happy is, some will even say flourishing is. And this idea of flourishing, this idea of blessing, this idea of happiness, it's not something that we just garner. It's it's a way of being in the, in the world. It's not something that we either are today and we're not tomorrow. It's a way of being consistently in the world. It's a way of, of living. There's a, this idea of virtue ethics in which the thing that I must do is learn how to live in this world that's right, that's good, that's honorable. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's, he's showing us this picture. Ultimately, if we really look at the details, he's actually painting the picture of himself. And so the more we become like Christ, the more we step into this blessedness, the more that we take on this identity of flourishing. And so it's not just a checklist. It's not something we ignore, but it's actually something that we step into. And so as um, one commentator said, this is, the Beatitudes are not about what we should do. The Beatitudes are actually about who we should be. It's not about what we do that matters, that's important, and we're going to get to that because Jesus follows that up in the next section about what we need to do. But it's first and foremost about who we are to be. 
And that is my desire. That is my desire for the brook. That is my desire for church in New Orleans. That is my desire for the church across the world, is that we would recognize who we are called to be, not just what we are called to do. Not just the mission of going make disciples, as good as that is and as important that is, if we do that apart from who we are, then we're going to miss the mark. But there is a danger. There is a danger with familiarity with the Beatitudes, a section of scripture that is well-known, that is recognized, that is on bumper stickers, that is in people's houses, that is on t-shirts, is that it becomes these kind of nice, good-feeling platitudes that we kind of just plaster everywhere we can to remind ourselves of. But if we really take a minute, if we really slow down and look at what Jesus says, I think we'll walk away with something a little bit different. And so let me read it again. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Did you see that? These aren't nice platitudes that we plaster around. These are actually a little dark, maybe a little depressing. I would argue maybe my pessimistic self. These are more connected with the reality of life that we live. We live in a world that has fallen, that is broken. A world of much pain, of suffering, of injustice, of virus, of disease, death. That is the world we live in. And oftentimes these platitudes that we live by, especially as Christians, they seem to be disconnected from the life that we live in Monday through Saturday. And probably even Sunday afternoon and maybe a little bit Sunday morning. We live in a world that's very different than oftentimes that we sing songs of and we pray prayers of and we preach sermons of. But Jesus isn't that way. He's very honest with the world that it is. And it's a world that's actually very different, that's disconnected in some ways from what the ideal is, what this flourishing life is that the world has created, right? We've heard that expression, I'm living my best life. I'm, I'm living life to the fullest. And oftentimes it is connected to relational wealth, physical wealth, and so on and so forth. But What Jesus says is flourishing and happiness and blessedness is not connected to what we have in this life, but what we have in Him. Because the reality is if we were to go through this list, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Who of us wants to be identified as poor? Luke actually says exactly that. Blessed are the poor. He doesn't even say in the spirit. Blessed are the poor. Most of us, if we are even close to that, category of poor, we want to do everything we can to remove ourselves from that. But Jesus says it's there that flourishing is found. Blessed are those who mourn. If this was one for our time, we, we don't like showing our emotions. Even when they're right, even when they're true, even when they're good. We don't want people to see that we're mourning. We don't want to pe- see pe- have people see that we're sad. But what Jesus says is those who mourn are actually those who are fully aware of the brokenness and sin that plagues the world, plagues themselves, and plagues those that they love. 
and they're mourning over that reality and wish it was something else. Blessed are the meek, or another word for this would be blessed are the humble. We don't look on humility that well, especially in, in our culture. It's all about what you can do, what you can muster up, what strength you can use to get what you need. But humility is this, this reality that I have no grounds of or to claim possession of anything. That everything that I have has been given by the gracious God, been given by a merciful God. And any time I begin to think that it's mine to wield and to use for my own pleasure, apart from Him, then we've missed the mark. So blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Who wants to be hungry? Who wants to be thirsty? There's, there's an a identification with a need, with something that is lacking in this person's life. This person that is flourishing, there's this lack. But if we're honest, many of us don't, that's the one position we don't want to be in. We don't want to be lacking anything. Because oftentimes what lacking means is that I now have to be dependent upon somebody else to provide for that. And this, this hunger and thirst for righteousness, what it's saying is that this person understands that what, the way God has designed the world for us to live in and, and to be is not the way it is. And so there's this longing that God would bring justice, that God would bring peace, that God would bring unity, that God would bring wholeness to the world and the life that we live, but it's not here yet, so I'm hungry and I'm thirsty and I'm crying out for God to bring that today. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. Mercy only comes when we understand the mercy that's been given to us. Mercy only comes when we understand what God has extended to us, not because of something we've done, not because of something we deserve, but simply because he's loved us. As one author says, mercy does not describe the ubiquitous, shallow virtue of niceness or tolerance in the Western culture, but it concrete actions of love, compassion, and sympathetic grace to those who are oppressed and those who have sinned. Mercy is not acting like something hasn't happened. Oh, it's okay. We'll move on. No, mercy is, is acknowledging what has been done, the, the ones that have been oppressed or the ones that have been sinned against. But because God has extended mercy to us when we were yet sinners, we can turn around and extend mercy to those that may be oppressing or sinning against us. Because the reality is we know there is a judgment coming for them. And we leave that judgment in God's hands and not in our own. Blessed are those who are peacemakers. Again, this is something that so often can be adopted into just, let's seek unity, let's not talk about anything that may divide us, let's not talk about any differences, let's just move on like it's, we're just one big happy family. But the reality is we all know that that's not true. Even in the church, there are differences and there are divisions and our prayer is that what Christ has done for us and what Christ has formed us into, which is this family, that that would bring about a, a relationship that allows for those differences and allows for people to fail 
and not feel like they're now ostracized and left out of the family. As another author says, the peacemaker, this person whom Jesus blesses and seeks to reconcile, um, he does it not by pretending that there are no differences or suppressing the differences. Do you hear that? There's, we don't act like there's no differences between us. We don't suppress the differences that do exist in us. But we create love for one another that transcends these differences and actually permits the people to join hands and hands despite the differences. That we acknowledge the differences and that we remove what, net, what is getting in our way of unity but we do it in a way that acknowledges and admonishes and, and really allows each and every one of us to step into who God has created us to be. The moment we begin oppressing others because we don't like the way it feels or the way it looks, we are in the wrong. We are no longer seeking peace. We're seeking some bastard idea of peace, but not the peace that Jesus brings. Because the peace that Jesus brings highlights and celebrates the differences because it's in that we know that he's died and he's reconciled each of us to himself. And since he's reconciled himself to him, we can do it to one another. And finally, the, the most encouraging part of this whole uh, Beatitudes is blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are reviled and are uttered all kinds of evil against them. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are called out, who are marginalized, who are oppressed because of, oftentimes here specifically, is because of their faith, because of their desire to live in harmony with Jesus and with others. They're marginalized. They're oppressed because they have different understanding of politics, because they have different understandings of human dignity and, um, <clears throat> and so many other things that plague us and that oftentimes can, if we're not careful, can remove us from spheres that we want to be in. And so we remove those things so that we can stay in that sphere of influence. But what Jesus actually says is the flourishing one is the one who is persecuted, the one who is marginalized, the one who is oppressed. And you may be wondering, like, how can that be? How can these things that we look on with this despising, we look down upon, we look as in fear and less than, how can these things be a sign of flourishing? And I think there's something to note that it's not the poor in spirit that is the flourishing. It's not the merciful in and of itself that's flourishing. It's not the meek. It's not the persecuted. It's not all these things. But it's actually the second part of what he says. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's why they're the flourishing ones. That's why they're the blessed ones. That's why they're the ones that have happiness. Because that flourishing, that happiness, that blessedness is not tied to their circumstances. It's tied to a promise that's given by a man named Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And on and on. 
our blessedness, our flourishing, our happiness is not in the character trait by itself, but it's actually because of the promises that are given as a result. And I think sometimes we can kind of push against this because we're so afraid of being caught up in the prosperity gospel that says, if you do this, then you receive this. But Jesus is saying that. He's saying, if you're like this, then this is your gift. If you are poor in spirit, then you receive the kingdom of heaven. And I think sometimes we're too pious to be like, no, we're not worried about what we get. Jesus gives it to you. He, he invites you in to receive it. And if we don't receive this gift, we don't receive this for promise, then we're no better off than we were at the beginning. Then we're famished and we're seeking after the things for what? So we can look good, so we can be proud of the work we've done, we can be proud of the, the mourning that we do, be proud of the poor and spirit and the hunger and the thirsting. No, that's not the point. The point is these people are expecting something that they may not see today. Right? That's why Hebrews 11 is so powerful for us. It's a, it's a picture, it's a story of a, a number of people across centuries that have longed for something that they never fully saw in this life. But they still stayed the course. They still moved towards God. Because God was calling them to something, because they knew who they were in God, and despite the fact that they never saw those promises fulfilled in that moment, they still had hope. They still had joy. They still had happiness. And the reality is they were flourishing, even if they got their heads cut off. Even if they never had a home to call their own. And that is what he's calling us into. He's calling us to sacrifice, ultimately. To be willing to give up the, the pleasures, the niceties of this life if necessary, so that we may receive the eternal promises of the next. And in some of these, we actually get to experience a little bit of this even now. Because what most of these tie back to, if we really look at them, is the fact that each of these promises is directly connected to the presence of God. Right? The kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? It's the place that God dwells uniquely. And so we get to experience that a little bit now because we know that God is with us every moment of every day. Sometimes because of the fallenness and the brokenness of this world, we are removed from that. We don't experience the way we should. Sometimes we have those dark nights of the soul. We have those lonely days. It's not because God has left us, but it's because sin has plagued our minds and our hearts to where we're not able to experience it. But there's a day coming, this kingdom of heaven, as we read in Revelations, that's coming where God's presence will be fully and unfettered. That we will not wonder where he is because he will be with us at all times and always. Where do we receive comfort? We receive comfort in this life, yes. But ultimately our comfort becomes from the fact that God is with us, that we have his presence with us for all times and all seasons. And how are we going to be satisfied for those that are hungry and thirsty? Again, because he's giving himself to us. We don't have to go look for it anywhere else. But there's going to be a day coming. And so we look forward to that day when God's presence is with us fully, completely, and unfettered. 
And so that should stir us. That should stir us with hope and with anticipation and with dreams. Is that enough for you? Is God's presence enough? If we can't say yes, then I think we need to do some self-reflection. If God's presence with us for all eternity is not enough to provide us hope, to provide us motivation for the work He's called us to, provide us vision for the future, provide us happiness and flourishing for the present, then we need to question whether we really know Him. If we're really one of His children. And so, I think it would be helpful to think of this in, in two folds, right? For those that are Christians, right? Those that do identify as a follower of Christ, I think the, the call for us right now is, is to do a self-assessment, to do some reflection and ask ourselves, if this is a description, these Beatitudes are a description of who a Christ follower is, a child of God, they are these things, there is a sense in which we can look at those as a description and see if that is us. To see if that really is identified with who we are as well. If we're living in light of that. And if not, we may want to question. What is getting in the way? Do we truly know the Lord? How do we begin living differently? Right? How do we look for this week for somebody who's hurting? And we don't look on with just pity and sympathy and we're just like, oh, I'm so sorry. But we draw near with, to them and we mourn with them. We mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. We extend mercy to those that are experiencing great seasons of just sin and that's hurting us personally. But we say, I'm not going to just justify it. I'm not just going to let it happen but I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask God that God would remove this sin from this person, but I'm also going to extend mercy as He's extended mercy to me. And I'm going to seek peace where I can, where there's opportunities in my workplace, where there's division and conflict. Instead of stepping in and allowing that to get caught up in it, I'm actually going to be the one that seeks to bring peace in that situation because God has brought peace to my life. And I believe He can do the same wherever we're at. And so the Beatitudes, like I said, are not just a description, which I think we can use in that way as Christians, but I think they're an invitation too. And so if you don't know the Lord, if you don't know Him as your Savior, as your Lord, if you don't know Christ that way, then this is an opportunity to you, an invitation to you to step in and experience life as it was meant to be. Not life that is going to be butterflies and roses and everything's going to be perfect and and you're going to meet Jesus, but a life that probably will be marked by pain and suffering, a life that will be marked by mourning and loss, but a life that is marked ultimately with the presence of God with you, knowing that you will not walk in this life any longer on your own. But the hard thing is this, this invitation, it's not something that we can kind of analyze and decide, ah, I think that's good. We're never going to fully experience, we're never going to fully know the re, full realities of what this life is until we step into it. 
or in the words of, of the psalmist, we, we taste and see that the Lord is good. For us to know this flourishing life, to us to fully know this blessed life, we must partake in it. We must step fully into it. Because it reminds me a little bit, like if we were to go to a restaurant, right, and we order our favorite dish, and we order it and it comes out and we look at it, we smell it, we touch it, we do all those like senses, everything except for eating it. In one sense, we're justified to do that because we've paid the money for it. But in the other sense, until we taste it, we will not fully appreciate what the chef has done to prepare it. We will not fully appreciate what God has done to bring the vegetables and the fruits and the meats and everything that's brought together in one beautiful dish that's supposed to be satisfying to one's body if all we do is look on it from a distance. We may have a lot of appreciation for it, but we do not know that dish. And in much of the same way, our, this invitation to you is to not just look at the Christian faith and analyze it and question, but it's to step into it and to experience it for all its glory, for all its beauty, for all its brokenness, for all of it. That's what Jesus is inviting us to this morning. And I think we could stop here. Like, this is enough for us to, to take us for quite a while if we're just sitting and do these reflections and look at kind of this description of who we're called to be. That would be more than enough for today. But I think God is calling us to more, and that's why I read that second part um, at the beginning in which we read, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So often these two parts of Scripture are removed from each other. They preach on the Beatitudes and the way of being, and then we preach on this salt and light, and that's kind of our call to missionaries. But what Jesus is doing is wedding these two. Because what he's saying is that we are all called to be witnesses, right? We have, go therefore and make disciples, right? That is a call to each and every one of us. That's all of our mission. And so we have this call of being a witness, being a disciple, being a priest to the world. But it is not detached from who we are. And it's only when we understand who we are and how we're to live that we can then proceed to the work of making disciples, of proclaiming the glory of God to the ends of the earth. And so I think it's um, a beautiful wedding of the two because what we, what we see if, if we take that approach is that our witness, oftentimes we kind of put it in two camps. It's either our vocal witness and we're going to share the gospel for, with everyone. I'm not demeaning that. Or on the other side, we're going to say, hey, it's going to be my good works, my deeds. Let everyone see what I'm doing, how I'm being a manager, how I'm interacting with my neighbors, how I'm feeding the hungry, how I'm fighting for uh, social justice, all those kind of things. Let, those, let that be my witness. And what Jesus is actually doing is he's saying, no, your witness is actually threefold. Your witness is, number one, it's your disposition. That was the whole point of the Beatitudes. The way that you live in this world is a witness to the God you serve. Whether it's the God of the Bible, whether it's the God of self, 
or some other God, the way that we live, the way that we interact, the way that we conduct ourselves speaks much of the God that we worship. Because if we've had any, especially if you lived in the South, you've had some interactions, right, with those grumpy old, typically white guys who are believers, who are Christians, and they want to witness to you. But they're cranky, they're not friendly, they, they just come across as rude. Their message may be right, and they may be doing some good works, but because of the way that they're approaching this opportunity to witness and to share the glory of God, it's not inviting you to anything. It's anything. It's pushing you away. You're like, if that's what it means, I don't want to be part of it. But what Jesus is saying is our disposition is actually the entrance into this. And once we understand our disposition is part of our witness, then we can move on to our vocal witness, right? It's the, the preaching of the gospel that, that Christ has come, that Christ has died, and that Christ has rose again. And that in faith we can be united to Christ and that we can step into these promises that he's given us, this promise of himself for all eternity. And we need that. We need our dis- the right disposition and we need the right words. But then the other part, right, he, even, he talks about right at the end. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. So it's also the things that we do. It's also the way that we engage with the world. It's also the way that we interact with the poor, with the marginalized, with the vulnerable. It's the way that we interact with our money and our wealth. It's the way that we interact with our relationships, our family. Right? One of the most powerful things when I moved to Miami that a a coach was kind of reminding me of, and actually really taught me, was one of the most powerful things that I can do is be a good family. It's to be a good father, a good husband in my community, because unfortunately in the world that we live in, those two things are not normal. They're no longer taken for granted. And so the way that we conduct ourselves in this life, the way that we manage our employees, whether we manage them just as numbers or we manage them as people with stories that God wants to redeem to himself, whether we interact with the the pleasures of especially our city, right? How much we love the beach. My wife loves it more than I do. But the things of this this city, we can either hold at arm's length or we can step into them understanding their gifts from God. But our witness is tied to that as well. How much we do rest or we don't rest. How much we do take pleasure or we don't take pleasure. How much we do love or we don't love. Each of these are important. And if we are going to be the people that I believe God wants us to be, then we must first be a people who are witnesses in our disposition. We're witnesses in the way that we conduct ourselves and live. Our attitudes, our heart posture, the things we say, the things we don't say. That we're witnesses in our vocal expression, that we do share the gospel, that we do share the good news, because it's only through that that they come to know and experience Jesus. That's how you did. That's how I did. Somebody was bold enough, somebody was clear enough to share what Jesus had done for me. And then we follow that up. We support each of those with our actions. That we do good works. Because it's in our good works that glory is brought to God. As my seminary professor said, the main point to be made here in this whole section of Matthew 5, 3 through 13, uh, 15 can be summed up with verse 16. It is an exhortation to a way of being in the world 
that is visible as deeds and dispositions. And sometimes these dispositions, these deeds, can be disliked and persecuted. We just were told that. We're actually promised that by Jesus. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. But that these things, they are to honor the disciples' heavenly Father. Our dispositions and our good deeds are to honor the heavenly Father, thereby proving that we are His. They prove the fact that we are His children, that we are His beloved. And it is precisely this that Jesus promises and offers repeatedly over and over and over again throughout His ministry. That it is our, our words, our dispositions, and our works that prove that we are God's children. And so, my call to us, to each of us this day, is that we would be a people who seem to live peculiar lives. Lives that maybe the world doesn't quite understand. But lives that demonstrate that God is in us, that God is with us, and God that is using, is working through us. And maybe we would have an opportunity to proclaim this reality to our neighbors, our friends, our family, and even complete strangers. That we would not neglect our role as witnesses and priests in this world, but that God has tasked us with an invitation an invitation that each of us have already stepped into as Christians, an invitation to flourishing. And it is our desire and it is our longing to see others experience that flourishing. And so for some of you, that means that you need to approach the way that you go to work. Maybe you don't go to work. Maybe you engage in Zoom calls. That is the season we're in. But you engage in it in a way that proclaims something different. Your disposition is not one of defensiveness, not one of superiority or pride, but one of humility and meekness, one of servanthood. And others, maybe it means that you have lived in the place that you are, and you kind of just see it as a place to rest your head, that, that, that home that you've created for however many hours you get to sleep, or maybe you eat some meals. But that we would capture a vision that God actually has called us to those houses and apartments and rooms to be witnesses of what he has done in us and through us and what he wants to invite others to as well. And ultimately, and this is tied to even last week with Carlos, is that I think some of you need to be open to the reality that God may be calling you. Part of your vision, part of your dreaming is no longer rooted here in Miami. And is no, more, no longer attached to the brook. That some of you need to take the bold step and move south and join Carlos in Coconut Grove as he's planning Reality Church. And some of you may be even moving with us to New Orleans and, and beginning to root your lives in a city that you don't know. Because you know that God is doing something and wants to do something there. He wants to form a people and he wants to send them out. And even some others of you, some of the really bold ones, maybe God is calling you today to put your life on the table and ask Him where He wants to send you. Not just here in the States, but beyond. 
that God will send you to the ends of the earth to bring his message of a flourishing life that's made available through Christ to a people that do not know him and maybe don't even have access to him right now because there is no missionary, there is no Christian in that community, in that city, in that country. And God is calling you to be that. But whatever you are, wherever you're at, and whoever you may be, my hope, my desire is that we would all take the posture of Hebrews 13, 14, which says, For here we have no lasting city. That doesn't mean we don't care about it. That doesn't mean we don't love it. But we, re- we realize it's not lasting. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And it is in that city that we will live fully, completely flourishing lives in the presence of God himself. Let me pray. Look, God, I just uh, I thank you again just for this opportunity. The reality of this opportunity just to be a part of this community to be part of this family called the Brook, a family from all people, for all people, who are passionate for your glory. And God, I pray that you would continue to stoke that fire, that you would continue to build that vision. Because you are calling men, women, and children to yourself, not because of what they have to offer or what cultural background they have, but because you love them. And you desire for them to live the way they were created to live. You desire for them to live flourishing and whole lives. Lives of happiness. Lives of blessedness. Because ultimately those lives are with you. So I pray, Lord, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted. Or God, that you would encourage us maybe where we're afraid and fearful of the persecution and and the pain that may come or actually probably will come, as you say, in in the Beatitudes. Lord God, that we would not be hampered by that, but Lord, that we would be motivated by the call. The call to spread your glory, your honor, and your fame to the end of the earth. And it is our privilege to be a part of that call, to be a part of that vision and that mission today. In Jesus' name, amen.